Well, good morning. So good to see all of you again this week. Uh, I'll invite you to open your Bibles with me as we are beginning a new study this week of the Gospel of John. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, but not to John chapter 1. Would you turn to John chapter 20 here as we begin? And you can find verse 24. You might want to put your finger in another place here. We're about to read John 20, 24 to 31, and then verses 24 and 25 of the next chapter, of chapter 21. So you might just keep your thumb there, and we'll just go seamlessly into those two verses. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Gospel of John, chapter 20, starting in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and, and, pla your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then chapter 21, verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This is the way we're going to begin this study. We're going to take a preliminary step this morning, uh, and one that I hope will be a real help to you in the days to come. I intend this is a help. I intend what we have in our bulletins, the handout there, to be a help as it can be helpful. And if these are helps, that would imply that there's some kind of a goal that we're working toward, right? So let's talk about that. What is the goal? that we're moving toward. Well, I have two goals for our time, and I mean that about this morning, and I mean that about our entire study that we're starting this morning. Uh, the first goal that I have for us is a goal that I hope is present every time we open God's Word together, because it's a goal that relates to a particular relationship. It relates to a relationship between me and the Bible that is in front of me and between you and the Bible that you're holding in your hands. 
What's that relationship like between you and your Bible? That's a broad question. So maybe a couple more specific questions. How do you feel about it? What do you expect from it? What do you expect from this book that you're holding in your hands? The historic confessions of the church have always had a great deal to say about the Bible itself. Just to give you an example, from the mid-17th century, the Westminster Confession of Faith describes in one place the ways that God's Word evidences itself to be the Word of God. And it gives a list. It's very helpful there. Let me give you three of those that they mention. Three ways that God's Word evidences itself to be of divine origin, to be the Word of God. One, the heavenliness of the matter. That is to say, the transcendent nature of what the Bible is speaking about and telling us. Number two, the efficacy of the doctrine. So the power in its teachings. And there is power in the teachings of Scripture, isn't there? The doctrines in our Bibles are capable of changing a person. From the inside out, changing them. The doctrines of Scripture used, implemented in the hands of God as his tool, are able to change the course of the world. And they've changed history, haven't they? They have done this, and they're continuing to do this. So the efficacy of the doctrine therein. And then there's a third one that, that I have always been especially maybe interested in. It's a, they say, the majesty of the style. The majesty of the style. We're talking about the way that the texts of Scripture fit together. I mean, incredible, right? Symmetry and unity across millennia of writing, many, many different human authors, even different languages. And through all of that, amazing symmetry, unity, cohesion, the majesty of the style. But those things that we're saying about the Bible as a whole, they apply to individual books in the Bible as well. The effectiveness of the organization of a particular book, the, the structures inside of that thing that the author uses to bring out uh, the points that he's making, whether it be for us now uh, in a narrative. I mean, we're, we're going to be in story time now for the next uh, many months. Very different than what we just finished in an epistle like Galatians. But no matter what the genre, uh, the, the structures inside are powerful. They're effective. Even word choices. I mean, the very choices of words that are used in just the right moment and in just the right way, this book is absolutely one of a kind. The fact that John wrote the gospel that we're going to be studying, as 2 Peter 1 says he did, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, here's my point. That does not just mean that whatever he wrote happened to be true. It certainly was true. The Holy Spirit did lead John into remembrance of what Jesus said and did. The Holy Spirit guarded him from error as he wrote. All of those things are true. It's just not enough to say by itself. Greg Allison recently wrote a book about the Holy Spirit, and he 
wrote in that book that the spirit seems to be responsible for the characteristics that are proper and unique to human beings. He's, he goes on like this. Scripture specifically mentions discernment, wisdom, understanding, and craftsmanship. And he lists places where the spirit in Scripture is said to be given to a particular individual who's engaged in a particular creative work. And guess what the result is of that, of that spirit-empowered work? Incredibly skilled work. That's what the result is. Incredibly skilled work. Exodus 31 is a good example. Just listen to this. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. This is what happens at times when the Spirit is given to empower and lead creative work being done. The Spirit was given to the, to the Apostle John to write this gospel account to be preserved and handed down to us. He was guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And given that impact of the Holy Spirit's guidance where he does those things, we should expect John's gospel then to not just be factually accurate, but to be stunning to be beautiful and utterly persuasive in the way he presents his material. This should be our expectation as we come to a study of the Gospel of John. And so one of the things that we'll see consistently, and starting this morning, is just how effectively John presents his material and how effectively he makes his argument. And we need to be very clear about that from the beginning. John is making an argument. He's not just presenting a history here. He's making an argument. And so our first goal is going to be to give John and the Holy Spirit the credit that is due by looking expectantly to learn what is compelling about how he makes his argument. Now, the second goal for our time is tied to that first one, and it's tied to it by John's purpose statement. That was part of what we just read at the beginning, John 20, verse 30. We want to understand what it is that John is pushing us to decide with this gospel story. And we want to do that at the beginning, right? So that we can then read his account with that in mind. So for us to do those two things this morning, I want us to begin by looking together at John's gospel itself. I mean, the whole thing. Uh, what is unique about it? Uh, how is it structured by John? And then we're going to use that to think about John's purpose statement in John 20, verse 30, uh, and understand how even the structure of the way he arranged this uh, is going to serve that purpose. It's really important to have a strong sense of the structure of a thing before you go into that thing. Have you ever watched the movie Cool Runnings from the early 90s? The Jamaican bobsled team? Do you remember the captain of that team staying up at night looking at photos of the turns that they were going to take in that run over and over, the order they were going to come in, the angle of the turns? Knowing that structure beforehand allowed him 
to lean into those turns and get even more out of the race. And so that's what this morning is. This is our uh, cool runnings moment where we really understand the structure that we're about to come into so that we can lean into it. So those are the two goals. Let's think about the first one for a bit here. John's unique characteristics and structure. It's really amazing. The, the lists of items that I'm about to list out. Uh, first list is a list of gospel story elements that if, if, if you are familiar with the story of Jesus and his life and ministry, you know these elements. The list of elements that are absent from the Gospel of John. They're just not a part of what we're going to be studying as we're going through this, what we're going to see. Uh, anything about Jesus' pre-ministry life, it's not, not here, including his baptism. The calling of the twelve disciples and the designating of them as the twelve, the naming of them, it's not here. He is going to describe the calling of a few, Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, uh, but it's nothing like what we see in the, what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about this. Those three gospels together are referred to as the synoptic gospels because they have so much in common as opposed to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. So the calling of the 12 is not a part of this. Uh, there are no narrative parables in the gospel of John. None. The transfiguration of Jesus before his disciples is not here, uh, nor is the institution of the Lord's Supper. There's no demon exorcisms in John's gospel. Uh, the temptations of Christ by Satan are not found in John's gospel. Maybe even most noteworthy, noteworthy the, the theme of the kingdom of God, which we talk about often, and which is so central in the synoptic gospels, it's practically absent altogether from the Gospel of John. It's just not the focus of his emphasis. In fact, the, state, the, the phrase kingdom of God occurs all of one time in John's Gospel. When Jesus is talking to uh, Nicodemus, he mentions that. It's the only time it happens. So there's all these things that are absent from the particular Gospel account we're about to work our way through. And conversely, there is a great <laughs> amount of material that only John gives us. I mean, the common percentage that's thrown around is that 90% of John's gospel is not found in any of the other three, none of the other three. 90% unique to this gospel. It's incredible. What are the things that we know about concerning the person, work, ministry of Jesus that we only know about from the gospel of John? Well, let's see. Only John mentions the miracle of water being turned into wine, marking the beginning of his ministry. Only John recounts the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3. Unless a person be born again, he will by no means enter the kingdom of God. How can a person return into his mother's womb while he... Are you a teacher of God's people and you don't understand these things? That's only in John. The, his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, only in John. How about this? The resurrection of Lazarus, only given to us in the Gospel of John. Hear this one specifically. Only, the, the only explicit identification statements between Jesus and God 
John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Thomas's confession at the end that we've already read, my Lord and my God. Only the Gospel of John has these two explicit statements. You are God. There are several extended dialogues that are really important uh, that are only found in John. The bread of life discourse in John 6, I am the bread of life. The good shepherd discourse in John 10, I am the gate of the sheep, I am the good shepherd. Uh, the farewell discourse in John 13 to 17, which includes the high priestly prayer, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of these things are only in John. And can you tell, where do you think all of the famous I am statements of Jesus are found then? The Gospel of John. You see why we call the first three the synoptics, and then there's this fourth one, the Gospel of John? So the question that we have to think about is, why these big distinctions? And of course, there's, there is some speculation as to the question, why? Because John doesn't sit down in a post-book interview and, and present things like this. But I believe there are two things that we know that explain it quite well. One is this, John, we know, was written after the other three, quite a bit after. And it seems that he is intentionally crafting his gospel account to supplement what is found in the synoptics. In fact, and this is interesting, I think, John makes very clear in several places in his gospel that he's assuming prior knowledge of the things that we find in the other three gospels. He's assuming that his reader is already familiar with the content uh, and the story that is found in the synoptic gospels. I'll give you a few examples of this. In chapter 1, John 1.40, John introduces Andrew, and he calls him Peter's brother. Well, guess what? No one said anything about Peter yet in the Gospel of John. Who's brother? Who's Peter? He assumes you already know who Peter is, so he can introduce Andrew as Peter's brother and say nothing more about it. John 3, 23 and 24, let me read this to you. John also was baptizing. He's talking about John the Baptist. That's going to be tricky. Apostle John, John the Baptist. He's talking about John the Baptist. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now, why do you put it that way? The people you're writing to, you assume, already know that he's going to wind up in prison. And so you bring up John and you say, he hasn't been put in prison yet at this point in the story. Right? You're writing to people who you think already know John the Baptist is going to get thrown in jail. Uh, last example, John 6, 67. Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? The twelve. No one said anything about twelve of anything in the gospel up to this point. They haven't even been given names. They haven't been designated as the twelve as they are in the other gospels. But he feels comfortable saying, Jesus said to the twelve and asked them this question. We're supposed to know who they are by now. So if John is anticipating a prior knowledge of the Synoptic Gospels, then it makes a lot of sense that he's going to choose to emphasize other details and events than those already presented. Now, it's still a Gospel account, though, isn't it? It's still an account of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so clearly there are elements that would be present in the other accounts. But I think that's helpful all by itself to have a sense of why John might be so different from the other three. It doesn't get very specific, though, at that point. We're still left wondering, how, why, how is he deciding what to include and what to exclude then? Uh, I really like the way that a man named Andreas Kostenberger answers that question. Kostenberger is a, a renowned, what we'll call Johannine scholar. He is a scholar of the Gospel of John. This is his career. Uh, and listen to what he says about that question. How is John deciding what to include or exclude? He says, my answer is this, theological transposition. John was not content merely to restate what the earlier Gospels had already competently and accurately set forth. Rather, he assumed much of the content of the earlier Gospels and theologically transposed various motifs to bring out the underlying significance of particular aspects of Jesus' person or work. Just like in music, you may transpose a tune into a different key. In other words, John is focusing us into a very particular question about Jesus as he's choosing not just what to include, but also how to say the things that he includes. He's focusing us into a particular question. Do you know what that question is? You do if you remember his stated purpose for writing the letter in John 20, 30. Let me read it to you again. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Uh, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's question is, is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah? Is Jesus the Son of God? That's his question. And he gets at that question uniquely by the sorts of things he chooses to include. makes a lot of sense then. Why, why Jesus' I am statements would be included in this gospel with this aim to answer this question. Who is he, really? And this is the one we find all of Jesus' statements, I am blank. So it gets at the question of why he includes the things he includes, but also of the kinds of transpositions that Kostenberger was talking about. Let me give you an example of these. When, when Jesus works miracles in his ministry, and you find them described in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are usually called dunamis. They're called mighty works or powerful works. Well, John writes of many of these and some of the same ones, but he never calls them that, not once. Instead, he calls them semeon. He calls them signs. He's telling the same story, but he is focusing on, he's emphasizing something else. So he doesn't call them mighty works. He calls them signs. We just heard it again in the purpose statement. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe. These what? These signs that I am holding out before you. John is famous for the listing of this set of signs in this gospel. This is a part of the organizing structure. How many signs? Are there six or are there seven? 
There's some debate there, and that'll be an interesting conversation, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, how many signs? Uh, but he's, th- this is what the Gospel of John is known for, and this is where, it was one place where I hope the bulletin insert will be helpful. Um, the outline on one side may help you just in guiding where we're going, but I'm talking about the, my attempt at a, at a chart there. If any of you are particularly nitpicky and you look too closely at the angled lines, you might not be pleased with that. I, I tried to get it to look nice. Um, John's Gospel is pervasively seen to be organized into two books. You have the Book of Signs in chapters 2 to 10, and you have the Book of Glory or the Book of Exaltation, chapters 13 to 20. And by the way, those are not arbitrary organizations that we're putting onto it. John has done this intentionally. They didn't use things like chapter breaks. You finish and then there's all this blank space and then you have chapter 2 on the next page. They didn't do that. Uh, They didn't use a blank page with the words the end in the middle so that you could know that you were supposed to stop. They didn't use the same organizational uh, indicators. And our modern arrogance is pretty astounding. And I'm talking of myself as much as I've had to to repent of this a little bit, uh, we're, 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 we're pretty amazing. We can find that they don't use our organizational markers and cues and decide that they must not have written with organization at all. They just kind of gripped the pen with their fist and did this, and, um, and we're going to try to figure out how they organized it. Maybe they were, yeah. Uh, in fact, they were very well organized. We're kind of the cavemen who apparently need to be told we're at the end of a section by seeing the words, the end, put there so we know it, or by making the author tell us, uh, okay, this, this thought, this issue is done, and now here's chapter 2, start again on a new thing. Apparently, we need to be told that. Uh, they didn't do that. They may not have needed that, I suppose. What they did... And what John does is he uses a literary device in the story itself called an inclusio to show the organizational patterns he's using. What this is, is it's a visual marker. I'm not talking about a marking. I'm talking about in the text itself, a visual marker for the reader. So what happens is, and usually it's a statement or a phrase that isn't necessarily essential to the story, but they'll put a phrase or a statement in at the beginning of something of a section, and then they'll put that exact same phrase or statement at the end of that section, and you're supposed to read and see it and go, oh, okay, I see what's happening here, and now we're moving on. You can see that, what I've put on your your handout there is that from in chapter 1, verse 28, and chapter 10, verse 42, they both repeat nearly verbatim this particular detail about Jesus being beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. And I didn't put it on the handout, but actually the, what you see there as the Cana cycle and the festival cycle, they each have their own inclusios as well. Uh, this kind of thing can get pretty, pretty uh, complex, uh, and there's no more need to say anything about that, but I simply add that so, so that it's clear the organization that we're seeing in this is John's doing on purpose. He knows what he's doing. These guys are good at this. And as he's being led by the Holy Spirit to present 
a gospel that's going to stand the time, stand the ages and continue to bless God's people, you see that same stamp of craftsmanship uh, that we would have seen in Bezalel's gold and stone and wood working in the Old Testament. So what John presents to us then, you can see it there on the handout. He's going to present us a series of signs that Jesus performs, each of which bear witness to Jesus' power and person in a unique way. And often following the sign, there's then an extensive discourse where Jesus goes into great detail, get this, about the messianic significance of that sign that was just written about. So he, he works a sign in John 6, 30 to 33, as he feeds the 5,000. And then John moves us immediately into the bread of life discourse that takes up the rest of the chapter. I am the bread of life that has come from heaven. Uh, you have a sign in chapter 9. Jesus heals a man who was blind from birth. That produces an uproar from the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, confrontation between them and Jesus. And then you have, chapter 10, the Good Shepherd discourse. I am the Good Shepherd. I am the gate of the sheep, as opposed to these blind guides who are leading God's people. This is all very intentional. So I hope that that insert is a helpful visual for you, maybe even in the weeks to come, uh, and uh, to hold on to as we go into this narrative. But secondly, and finally this morning, I want us to do something with what we've just been describing. Now that we understand maybe a little bit more about the content choices and the structure of John's gospel, well, now we can use that in our effort to grasp John's purpose statement and to understand what it is um, that he's about to accomplish, even using the structure and the emphases that he does. Again, here is his purpose statement that he has told us produced this gospel. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I want us to understand this morning that that goal of John's is intricately tied to the way he has planned out his gospel. And that goal of his aims at Jesus' revelation of who he is by means of increasingly indisputable signs, which must then be accepted or rejected. This is the story of the Gospel of John. This is what we see in the book of signs there, in the, the early part of, of the Gospel account. The book of signs which culminate in the sign of Lazarus' resurrection. Now what you'll see on that handout is that uh, chapters 11 and 12 are something of a bridge between the two books because in chapters 11 and 12 you have the final sign that Jesus gives you have it rejected, and then you have Jesus begin to very obviously shift his goal heavenward, crossward. He begins to prepare his people for his departure to the cross. And the second book, the book of glory, is all about his march back to the Father by means of the cross. Well, you have him praying about those things and speaking about those things in chapter 12. So chapters 11 and 12 have both books in them 
That's how they are, they're a bridge between the two. That sign of Lazarus is really important, in other words, in this gospel account that we're given by John. When that sign is rejected in John chapter 12, and boy, is it rejected. What is the response of the leadership to the sign of Lazarus' resurrection? The final decision to plan to murder him. And by the way, let's kill Lazarus too. That's the place where that decision comes. When that sign is rejected in John 12, it is their condemnation. And from that moment, his attention turns to the cross and to preparing those who did, in fact, receive him. To preparing those who saw the signs, trusted in the giver of these signs and in the display of these signs, and followed after him. You remember John 1.12, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. What we have here in this gospel are eyewitness accounts of the work and person of Jesus Christ. And so they are signs intentionally presented in demonstration of the claim that Jesus is the Messiah and is, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us. D.A. Carson writes about this as, as the purpose of the Gospel of John. He said this of Uh, the Apostle John, the writer here. For he is sure that God has acted and that his action is to be seen in Jesus Christ. This This is the stamp he is making and what he is presenting for us. John is sure that God has acted and that his action is to be seen in Jesus Christ. So let's turn that into a question for ourselves this morning. Has God acted? Has he acted in rescue of his people? He's clearly acted in creating. Has he acted redemptively? If he has not, then what on earth are you doing here this morning? If he has not acted redemptively, how are you wasting an hour and a half of your life right now You are still in your sins. You understand that? A way of escape from the wrath of God and entrance into his kingdom continues to elude you. And you're sitting right here? Get out of here and get very busy working as hard as you can because redemption has not been arrived at. You're still in your sins. Or if you're old enough to have figured out and maybe I assume this is for anyone over the age of 9 or 10, if you're old enough to have figured out that your efforts are hopeless to earn a standing, your own conscience has made very clear to you how hopeless that attempt is, then just fall to the ground in despair. Because very likely by now you've come to realize that if God's approval remains a thing to be attained, 
then you're doomed. Because it will never be attained by the likes of you. But as we'll see very clearly in this gospel account, Jesus presents himself as the hope of hopeless people. Of a people dying of a sickness that they can't cure. He makes clear in his ministry, as revealed to us in the Gospel of John, that that is our plight, and that he is enough, indeed he is the only hope for such a people. So he will equate himself in John chapter 3 with the serpent that Moses lifted up in Numbers chapter 21, which a poisoned and dying people needed only to look to in faith and that judgment and death would be snatched from them. That's how he presents us, and it's how he presents himself in John chapter 3. Jesus says that dim picture from Numbers 21 of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in another that God has given to save you, that dim picture is going to shine out like the sun when I am raised up on that cross. And when you see it, that's what you're supposed to see. That's the need you're supposed to see. And when you look to that cross in faith, you're supposed to know that that is all that has been demanded of you. Look to him in faith, and he will wash you clean of your sickness, of your guilt. Indeed, he will, and isn't this a theme in the Gospel of John, he will give you new life altogether. You will be born again, and you'll never be the same. Jesus will readily acknowledge in the Gospel of John that your conscience has been right all along, that the wages of sin is death, and that you have indeed sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And I mention the conscience there in, intentionally, and maybe... I described that more strongly than I should have. We are very good at deceiving ourselves, and our consciences can be seared, uh, where we can convince ourselves of things that are not true. But I am quite certain the Lord sees to it as we go through our lives, that there are moments, no matter where we are in our life, apart from Christ, where our sins are ever before us, and where we know. In fact, that's why we have so much to run from and hide from and try to suppress with distractions and entertainment and everything else. We know. Jesus will paint you the picture of yourself in the Gospel of John that is true. And then he will say in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. There is a death. that some unspeakably blessed men, women, and children are never going to have to face. It's what the Bible calls the second death. And it, as opposed to the first, is not a temporary death. It is the casting forever into separation from all of God, save his judgment and wrath. Jesus says some will never taste that death. Who? Who are these blessed people? 
they are those who believe in him. Those who believe, what do you know? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. By believing, you will have life in his name. This is the journey that John is going to lead us on in the weeks and months to come. And I am super excited. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we continue to every week thank you that you have chosen to give us more time in this life before your word. And you've chosen to give it to us together as a family. Thank you for what you have been doing for so many years in our collective lives. And thank you, Lord, even now, thank you. We don't know what you intend, what you have planned for us through this study. We don't know the details, but we know your good purposes. We know the ways that you use your word to change us, to conform us to the image of your Son. And we simply thank you again this week that you have not withheld your word. You have brought it to us liberally and out of your love and joy for your children. And I pray as we go forward in this study that we would all be confronted with this question. I pray especially for those among us who do not know you savingly, that they would be confronted with the question, who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah that you have given? Is he the one and only hope for their eternal outcome and salvation? I pray that those who don't know you would come to know you through this study. And I pray that those who do know you would not only be strengthened in their convictions about the Lord Jesus Christ, but Lord, I pray that through this study you would enable us to live in the truth of what we say we believe. There are so many places in our lives where we say, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but it is a weak faith that is not yet being lived and felt as it should. God, I pray that you would strengthen the knees that are feeble through this study. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.